Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. Our dear friend Richard Schwartz returns today to share a really exciting and groundbreaking plan to revive and update a largely forgotten ancient Jewish holiday. And of course, this being Animals Today, we are bringing this to you because this holiday would be a great benefit to animals and also the environment. So why would we want to do this, to resurrect and modernize a nearly forgotten holiday, and how would you go about doing it? Richard Schwartz is President Emeritus of Jewish Veg, that's the organization formerly known as Jewish Vegetarians of North America, and he comes to us today from Israel. Welcome back to the program, Richard. It's been so long. <laughs> okay, great to be on. And I, First, I want to make sure I commend you for all the great work you're doing for so many years for the animals and want to wish you much continued success. Thank you, Richard. Richard, why are you attempting to restore and transform an ancient Jewish holiday? Okay, many, many important reasons. First, Judaism has very powerful teachings on compassion for animals, and yet uh, most Jews are either unaware or not uh, reacting enough to the fact that animals are so badly treated on factory farms. Second, animal-based diets are very inconsistent with basic Jewish teachings take care of our health, treat animals with compassion, to protect the environment, to conserve resources, to help hungry people, and to pursue peace. And, uh, and yet very few Jews are vegetarians. One important reason nowadays is that the climate experts are warning us more and more we're heading toward a climate catastrophe. And many people don't realize it, but animal-based agriculture is one of the major, major contributors to climate change. According to a UN Food and Agricultural Organization report, as a matter of fact, it is more contributing to uh, climate change than all the cars, trains, planes, and other means of transportation combined. One other thing very relevant today, and fortunately, as we all know all too well, this coronavirus pandemic is so devastating. We've had many wake-up calls of other pandemics, all of which were caused by the tremendous mistreatment and consumption of animals. So shifting away from an animal-based diet can help there. And one other thing, in this critical time, it's essential that there be bold, new, creative ideas, like reestablishing uh, the holiday, to increase awareness of Judaism's powerful teachings on compassion for animals and how far from the realities for animals these teachings are today, very unfortunately. What are you going to call this holiday and why? And please explain mm -hmm. its roots in antiquity. Sure. Okay. Actually, within Judaism, there's four New Year's. Pretty much everybody's familiar with Rosh Hashanah, the uh, Jewish New Year. There's also another one, which was a uh, New Year for trees. As a matter of fact, that is a precedent for what we're trying to do, because when the temple was destroyed in 70 in the common era, there was no need for tithing for trees and for animals. And uh, this, what we're trying to do is reestablish one of those New Years which is the new year for animals. Initially, it was for tithing for sacrifices. So what we want to do is reestablish it, but again, transform it into a day to show that Judaism has these powerful teachings on compassion for animals. Unfortunately, much of the attention 
within uh, the holiday celebrations, the Torah readings, or on the sacrifices, which uh, occurred many, many years ago. So that's again, we want to reestablish one of those new years and use it to show that uh, Jewish teachings can be very relevant today in responding to today's critical issues. What are the Jewish teachings about the treatment of animals today? Jews are supposed to be, in Hebrew, Rachmanim B'nai Rachmanim, which means compassionate children of compassionate ancestors. One of the important Jewish teachings is we're supposed to emulate God's uh, compassionate teachings. And it says in uh, Psalms, 145, number nine, that God's compassions over all of, of God's works. And uh, many teachings, as a matter of fact, it was a test for choosing a leader. Of course, the greatest Jewish leader, Moses, and King David as well, were deemed suitable to be leaders because of their very compassionate treatment of animals when they were young, when they were shepherds. And it's so important, it's part of the Ten Commandments. One of the Ten Commandments, of course, is people are supposed to rest on the Sabbath day, but it indicates that animals are also, means really the interpretation they should be free to roam in the fields and enjoy the beauties of God's creation, certainly very far from how animals are treated on factory farms today. And other things, for example, if a person has a pet, that person should not sit down to his or her own meal until making sure that pet has been fed. So many things in the Torah, it says you can't yoke a strong and a weak animal because a weak animal won't be able to keep up. You can't muzzle an ox while the ox is threshing in the field and being denied to eat some of the products that he's surrounded by all the time. And to give just an example of the many powerful Jewish teachings on compassion for animals that we're trying to create more and more awareness of through, again, reestablishing the ancient New Year for animals. Are animal sacrifices still part of the Jewish religion? Well, again, when the temple was destroyed in 70 in the Common Era, no more sacrifices, and the rabbis indicated that uh, prayer and study and good deeds would take the place of it. Now, the thing is, when the Torah was given thousands of years ago, sacrifices of animals, that was just the only way of worship that people knew. Now, for Judaism, it was a great step forward because they eliminated many of the cruel practices of they certainly eliminated human sacrifices, including child sacrifices. And also, within Judaism, every sacrifice had to be done in one central location. Somebody couldn't just go off and say, I'm going to sacrifice here or there. And the idea was to actually wean the Jewish people away from these sacrifices. Now, the Jewish prophets indicated very strongly that God was more concerned that people should be living in conditions of with mercy, compassion, and justice. Matter of fact, Isaiah indicated that sacrifices could actually be an abomination to God if carried out along with acts of uh, injustice. There was a society where people thought uh, they're sacrificing perhaps, or that's what God wants, but that's certainly far from enough. Of course, Jews do pray again for reestablishment of the temple, but according to Ralph Cook, if the third temple is reestablished, there would be sacrifices again, but this time only in, of grains. 
And he pointed this out and actually based on a very powerful prophecy of Isaiah that in this ideal time, messianic time that Jews yearn for, then the wolf will dwell with the lamb, the lion will eat salt, the ox, no one shall hurt nor destroy in all of God's holy mountain. So it'll be vegetarian period, even a vegan period. And again, only grain and other plant sources for sacrifices. Yeah. Richard, we've been friends and colleagues for, wow, over a decade now. In that time, do you think, apart from this new effort, that Jewish leaders and rabbis are discovering as Jews the importance of animal welfare? Are you happy with what's transpired over the past decade or so? Definitely, there's been progress. I'm now in Israel, by the way, and uh, Israel's a world capital of veganism, and they have very powerful laws on compassion for animals. Some years ago, based on these laws, the Israeli Supreme Court banned the production here of pate de foie gras, but uh, far, far more needs to be done. And that's, again, another reason we want to bring up and reestablish this New Year for Animals to increase awareness and to sort of very respectably challenge rabbis. And I have found over the years there's hardly any more dedicated people with so much involved wanting to teach about Judaism, be a choose more involved. But somehow, whether it's because they don't offend people in their congregations, rabbis have not been doing enough, but there definitely has been an increase. Certainly there's been an increase among young people here in Israel, as I say, the highest percent of vegans are in Israel. There's been more and more rabbis, but still uh, much more. And one of the things I'm doing, by the way, uh, to regard to this uh, reestablishing the holiday, I'm planning three different Zoom events. This is a new approach to get the word out. One in the U.S., one in the U.K., one in Israel, where we'll have rabbis, and environmentalists and vegetarians, medical professionals speaking. And in conjunction with that, I'm preparing a press release. And at the end of the press release, I'm going to have quite a number of Jewish organizations supporting this, number more than a dozen so far and growing almost every day of rabbis and other key Jewish uh, activists supporting this initiative to reestablish this ancient holiday. And also we have so far seven blurbs or supporting statements from rabbis about the holiday. And uh, now that my press release is almost finished, I plan to send it out not only to the media, to many rabbis asking many, many more to sign on to this. Because <laughs> as you know, they say there's nothing more powerful and an idea whose time Yes, I love that, yes. <laughs> and I believe very strongly the time has come, momentum shifting, maybe we just need that extra push. Again, it's especially young people are becoming yeah. more involved. And it's so much easier nowadays to be a vegan. Years ago, maybe it was limited amount, but now there's so many substitutes for animal based meats and all, so many plant-based, some of them so well done that uh, dedicated carnivores cannot tell the difference between the plant-based version and the uh, animal-based version. Yeah. Okay, don't go away. We're going to continue our discussion with Richard Schwartz right after this break. 
past three decades, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. ISAR is committed to raising public awareness of dog and cat overpopulation through ISAR's Worldwide International Homeless Animals Day. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.com. Today, we're talking with Richard Schwartz about his initiative to restore and transform an ancient Jewish holiday, the New Year for Animals. You have a book coming out in September called The Vegan Revolution, Saving the World, Revitalizing Judaism. Do you think there's a vegan revolution today? And if so, why is it happening? Well, definitely do think so. Like you said in the first segment, first of all, in Israel, highest percent, the young people especially are moving more and more to veganism. I'm here in Israel at a uh, senior retirement center. Unfortunately, many of the older people uh, are not so ready to change, but almost every one of them says, I have a grandchild, a great-grandchild who's a vegan. I went to this wedding. Unbelievable, it was all vegan, uh, plenty of good food. Anyway, so we have that. And again, more and more great choices, some experiments and all that. And then there was one, by the way, product that was called Beyond Meat. Yeah. When, when the stock market and within days, its value shot up, and especially now with this pandemic, where so many people at the meatpacking plants, so-called slaughterhouses, are coming down with that coronavirus, and that's a problem, and um, making it harder for them, and that's another reason that plant-based foods are uh, becoming more and more to the fore. As far as why it's happening, I think that people are starting to see more and more the health benefits of vegetarian and even more so vegan diets. One more seeing that there's no way we're going to avert a climate catastrophe without a major shift to a plant-based diet. And again, I think there's more and more awareness of really how terrible, terrible the way animals are treated. And I hope they'll also see that if we want to avert another terrible, terrible pandemic like we're now suffering through, it's essential that we stop the widespread mistreatment and consumption of animals. Yes. Richard, any final thoughts for our listeners? I hope that if people want to work on this, they can contact me. I'm going to give my email address. So veggierich at gmail.com. That's V-E-G-G-I-E-R-C-H at gmail.com. Feel free to contact me. We just celebrated our fourth anniversary a few days ago. And I've been blessed with three grandchildren who got married, and I just became a great-grandfather. But this provides even more incentive because I you know, when people get married and the great grandchild is born, I think, what kind of world are we living, leaving for them? So that is why it's essential. I hope everybody listening to this will go to their rabbi, priest, imam, religious leader, go to uh, politicians, write letters to editors. So we've got to start thinking out of the box. One of the unprecedented changes 
is to have something like New York for Animals to help shift people to a much more rational diet, a healthier diet, a more compassionate diet, a diet that's better for the environment, it's better for the world hungry people, and a diet that, that is essential to help shift our parent planet onto a sustainable path. And to your point about children and future generations, everyone in the animal welfare movement is interested in setting a good example for children and teaching children to be compassionate toward animals. Richard, this is a great idea, a wonderful initiative, New Year for Animals. We're going to help you promote it. Richard Schwartz, thank you very much. Oh, my pleasure. And again, best wishes for your continued success. Hey, this is Dr. Lori Kirshner, and thanks for listening to Animals Today. Not only can you find us on your radio dial, but you can also listen to the show by going to animalstodayradio.com, or you can subscribe to the Apple Podcast on iTunes. And remember to follow us on Facebook and join the conversation. Animals Today is brought to you by the animal welfare organization Advancing the Interests of Animals. Please visit them at aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. And consider making a donation to help support the show. And thank you for your interest and your support. So not sure if you know this, Peter, but in recent years, the raw food or raw meat-based pet diet has become a popular trend. And this trend exists in both dogs and cats. And in part, it is influenced by books such as one called the Paleo Pet Handbook. And many pet owners believe these raw meat diets are healthier for their animal. This is from Veterinary Practice News, a new study by Utrecht University scientists published in British veterinary journal Vet Record found that raw meat-based diets for pets places owners at risk of serious disease. The study, which analyzed 35 raw meat-based diets from eight brands, revealed that 86% of these sampled products carry potentially deadly pathogens, while salmonella was detected on 20%, and there was various other parasites as well. According to the scientists, pets who are fed these raw meat diets can pass on these bugs to humans through direct contact, like licking or brushing up against them. Researchers wrote that pathogens also can be transferred through direct contact with the food, through contact with a contaminated pet, such as sharing the same bed and allowing licking of the face and hands, through contact with household surfaces, or by ingesting cross-contaminated human food. These raw meat-based diets include raw, dried dog and cat treats such as pig ears, home-prepared meats based from food sold for human consumption, and commercial raw meats marketed for pets. Researchers believe there's no evidence for any benefit of raw meat-based diets compared to the mainstream dry and canned pet foods, and that raw meat-based diets may even be less nutritious. According to the Utrecht study, quote, in nutritional terms, these diets are often deficient in several nutrients and may therefore lead to serious health problems, especially in young animals that are growing. In addition, researchers found pets who are fed these raw diets are more likely to become infected with antibiotic-resistant bacteria than pets on conventional diets. Researchers said, quote, the presence of antibiotic-resistant bacteria in raw meat-based diets could therefore pose a serious risk to both animal health and public 
public health, not only because infections with these bacteria are difficult to treat, but also because of the potential of it contributing to a more widespread occurrence of such bacteria. It's important to encourage awareness of the possible risks associated with feeding raw meat-based diets to companion animals, and pet owners should be educated about personal hygiene and proper handling of raw meat-based diets, the study said, adding that education from veterinarians is a vital component. Sounds like a bad idea to me, Lori. Yep, does. There's more animals today coming up right after the break. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner from Animals Today. As temperatures climb, please remember never to leave your dog in the car, even for just a minute. Because even with the windows cracked and your car parked in the shade, the temperature inside can climb up in a matter of minutes, high enough to kill your pet. If you love your dog, leave him at home where it's cool and comfortable. And if you see a dog or other pet in a car, you may only have a minute to save their life. Here are a couple steps you can take. Make an announcement in the store or business that cars park nearest to. Also, call the police department or animal control right away. Remember, it only takes a minute or two for a dog to get seriously ill or die in a car on a warm day. So swift action can save a life. Dogs are unable to cool themselves the way people can. So never leave a dog or any animal inside a car on a warm day, not even for a minute. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Check them out at aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. Welcome back to the show. We are going to be speaking today about animal hoarding. And uh, what sparked this is a recent law review article on the topic. We have talked about animal hoarding before, many years ago, before the publication of the DSM-5, which gives hoarding disorder its own entry. Our guest is Courtney Lee, professor at McGeorge School of Law in Sacramento, where she wears many hats, including teaching animal law. The article is titled, Never Enough Animal Hoarding Law. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So what is your interest in animal hoarding? Why is this something you've written about? Well, I started teaching animal law several years ago, and there was a a small section of the book that discussed animal hoarding, and it it was rather short, and I just... I was intrigued after teaching the course, and I went to look look further, and upon finding that there was such a high recidivism rate, I became even more interested, and just the more I dug, the more interesting it became. So that's what led to the article. So one thing that we should do at onset is distinguish hoarding of objects from animal hoarding. So if you can give us a overview of that, please. Sure. So there are overlapping tendencies between both object hoarding and animal hoarding. And some people hoard both objects and animals. They they aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. Um, However, one of the main differences between object hoarding and animal hoarding is the impacts of animal hoarding. They can be much broader and more widespread than object hoarding. For example, Animal hoarding obviously harms the animals themselves, which can number into the hundreds. So that's hundreds of sentient beings that are being harmed and neglected. But also animal hoarding can result in harms to neighbors and the community, as well as to the hoarder him or herself. 
For example, animals will often in large quantities when they are not cared for properly emit odors that will be unpleasant for those living nearby or in the actual structure. Um, ammonia from urine could cause major respiratory difficulties. Also, uh, large quantities of animals living together are more prone to produce more zoonotic diseases. And whether those diseases are airborne or perhaps get into the water supply somehow, it can have a wide-ranging impact on the community. This is in contrast to object hoarding, which often focus, you know, anyone can hoard anything, but often the objects are newspapers, mail, bags, clothing, etc., that really could pose harm to the actual hoarder, him or herself, but aren't as detrimental to the surrounding communities and certainly not to animals, unless that person also hoards animals. Is there something about the underlying psychology that's been identified between those who hoard objects and animals? There are some underlying um, psychological issues that are common to both object hoarding and animal hoarding. I'm certainly not a scientist, so I don't profess to be an expert in that area, but I know that often hoarders have the same obsessive-compulsive disorder tendencies. Um, they may have um, ADD issues as well. Underlying, especially animal hoarding, but also to some extent object hoarding, is just the underlying compulsion to control the hoarder's objects and or animals. That also can be why um, animal hoarders often are found with carcasses of animals that have passed away in their care because they have this compulsion to control. And unlike objects, animals don't last forever. Arguably, some objects don't either, but animals certainly do not. And often the hoarder is unable to let go of that physical remains of the, of the animal that he or she has lost. So there are many cases where animal hoarders will be found living with hundreds of living and dead animals mm. in their care. You write about three main types of animal hoarders. Can you go through those? It's interesting that there are now discrete categories identified. Yes, absolutely. And again, not every hoarder falls exactly into one category versus the others. There are some that overlap between categories. So first of all, there are what are known as overwhelmed caregivers. This is often the, the type of hoarder that's portrayed in the media more, more often than not. Overwhelmed caregivers mean well. They, they might start with just one or two animals. Um, maybe someone drops off a, a stray or a litter of kittens or puppies or, or other animals. And the overwhelmed caregiver means well, is trying to take care of them. They might, the hoarder might not spay or neuter the animals properly and the animals reproduce and it just becomes overwhelming to that person, hence the term overwhelmed caregiver. Often these overwhelmed caregivers are amenable to help and, and if anything, they might even welcome intervention from agencies that want to step in and help them and help the animals. They are not very combative, typically speaking, and they are less likely to go back to their old hoarding ways once there has been intervention. The next category of animal hoarder is known as the rescuer hoarder. And this is one that, that, is, that can overlap a lot with overwhelmed caregivers. The rescuer hoarder might start as an overwhelmed caregiver, but if left to continue without any kind of assistance, might lapse into this rescuer hoarder category, which is 
someone who ultimately becomes delusional to the point that he or she believes that he or she is, is the only individual that can save these animals, the, the savior who, who is the only one who can provide proper care, even though in reality the hoarder is not providing proper care at all. The rescuer hoarder might begin by taking in animals and attempting to find them homes. Often that will devolve into determining that no other adoptive homes are good enough, and then that balloons into the delusion I just mentioned, where the rescuer hoarder believes that he or she is the only possible savior for these animals, and then the compulsion grows stronger, and they acquire more and more, and it just, again, balloons out of control. The third main type of animal hoarder is a lot more nefarious, and that this is someone known as the exploiter hoarder. There's one individual who came up in a lot of my research that typifies the exploiter hoarder. Um, this woman is, is named Vicki Kittles, K-I-T-T-L-E-S. She has left a trail of um, destruction and, and harm in multiple, I think it might have been like five different states. She, like like the typical exploiter hoarder, is very, um, very savvy, very manipulative, and very familiar with the legal system. So even though she has been in court many, many times and even gone to prison, jail, um, she is able to manipulate the system, get out, and then go right back to hoarding once again. And again, I'm just using her as an example who came up in a lot of my research, but there are other examples as well. Um, exploiter hoarders, I think, tend to be less common than, for example, overwhelmed caregivers, but they do exist with enough um, frequency that they merit their own category. And then, of course, there are overlapping types and then some somewhat introductory hoarding types, if you want to call it that. They are uh, the introductory kind of early onset hoarding stages are called incipient hoarding and breeder hoarding. And incipient hoarders may have animals and meet the minimum required standards of care, even if only barely, but are dangerously close to, to slipping underneath that line. Um, and then often they might more warp into um, overwhelmed caregivers. And breeder hoarders are to be contrasted with legitimate animal breeders who have legitimate organizations that do take care of their animals. Breeder hoarders um, breed animals for show or sale, and they continue to breed the animals even though conditions deteriorate and even though it becomes clear to an outside observer that they are not meeting minimum standards of care. If someone is to encounter an incipient hoarder or a breeder hoarder, if that person is able to intervene or that agency is able to intervene at that point, then it's a benefit to all involved because it can keep the the incipient or breeder hoarder from ballooning into a rescuer hoarder or overwhelmed caregiver or, unfortunately, an exploiter hoarder. You write that animal hoarding is widespread. Uh, do we have a handle on specific numbers? Do we have estimates on how common this is? Well, in 
the United States alone, there are incidents ranging from about 700,000 to 1.4 million um, hoarding cases. And that's not just animal hoarding, but hoarding in general. And many of those presumably are animal hoarding cases. But I didn't find any data specifically regarding animal hoarding itself. But it is a widespread problem, and it affects not only the United States, but also other countries as well. I've read cases. Um, there is a famous case from Sweden of a woman who hoarded 150 swans in a one-bedroom apartment. There are cases in other European countries and Canada and elsewhere as well, but it is a widespread problem. We're speaking with Courtney Lee, a law professor from McGeorge School of Law about animal hoarding. And being that she is a professor of law, when we come back, we're going to be delving into the law just a little bit so we can understand how complex and uh, challenging it is to deal with these cases. You're listening to Animals Today. Every day in our community, countless animals are starved, beaten, and abused by people. And sadly, most of these cases go unreported, and the abusers get away with it. And in many cases, someone knew about the abuse, but did not report it. So if you see someone hurting an animal, or even if you just suspect something, call the police or animal control right away. Animal abuse does not just mean physically abusing an animal. Neglecting animals can be just as bad. So if you see your neighbor's dog being underfed, left without water, or tied up in the backyard without protection from the elements, it is important to report that too. In many cases, you don't even have to give your name, and your phone call may save an animal's life. Also, we know that many violent and abusive adults got their start by first abusing animals. It's true, people who harm animals often turn their violence against other people, and that is a cycle we need to break. Remember, animals can't speak out for themselves, so reporting animal abuse can save lives. This message is presented by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at www.aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner. You're listening to Animals Today. You know, Animals Today is a project of advancing the interest of animals. Advancing the interest of animals is a nonprofit animal welfare organization. We're based here in Palm Springs, California. And if you like what we're doing, please consider donating a little bit to Advancing the Interests of Animals to support the continued production of the show. The website's aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. most people, you have lots of plans, a financial plan, an exercise plan, a career plan. You also need a plan for the care of your pets when you no longer can provide it. Every day, animals are sent to shelters, terrified and confused, because their owners have become incapacitated or died. Unfortunately, many of these animals get euthanized. A legally enforceable pet trust offers the only assurance that your assets will be used as you wish to provide for the comfort and care of your cherished animal companions. Almost every state recognizes pet trusts. 
Find out how to create one today and take steps to make sure your pet doesn't risk becoming yet another sad shelter statistic. Plan for your pet's lifelong well-being. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. That's AIAnimals.org. AIAnimals.org. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with law professor Courtney Lee about animal hoarding. And let's talk a little bit about the law. Uh, Courtney, you point out how complex it can be to handle these cases in your article. There are multiple agencies. There's law enforcement. There's animal welfare concerns. There's mental illness. There are all the professionals related to that. It's a big and expensive undertaking to handle these cases, isn't it? Absolutely. So as you mentioned, there are multiple agencies that that could and arguably should become involved in hoarding cases, um, animal welfare agencies, social service agencies, perhaps even child or adult protective service agencies, and law enforcement, um, as well as environmental agencies, especially in animal hoarding cases that can impact the, the environment around the, the hoarding situation. Um, if these agencies are able to work together to formulate a, a plan for intervention and assistance for the hoarder, then it can positively impact the recidivism rate, which at this point is close to 100 um, percent. Most hoarders, once even once their properties are cleaned and they are, um, quote unquote, helped um, and, quote unquote, cured, as the case may be, they almost inevitably will go right back to their previous hoarding ways. So it's important for all of these agencies to be involved and to treat the actual hoarding disorder and not just the symptoms of cleaning the property and rehoming the animals because it's bound to just happen once again after that point. Um, some overwhelmed caregivers may not be so inclined to begin hoarding once again, but most hoarders are are suffering under a compulsion, and they will. The, the old adage is that a hoarder will stop and pick up an animal on the way home from the courthouse. So it is important to involve all of these agencies, and, and they may have some competing concerns, but if they work together, they can find a compromise. So, for example, a wealth, an animal welfare agency may have their their main focus on taking the animals and rehoming the animals, whereas a social a social service agency may have their main focus on the well-being of the hoarder, him or herself, and may not want to have the animals removed because it will traumatize the hoarder. But again, if they work together, they can find compromises that can that can really help address the underlying issues. What states or communities are doing a particularly good job in managing these hoarding cases, and what does that look like? Well, there are some, uh, there are more localized agencies than state and certainly federal agencies. Um, there are a couple that I found in my research, um, San Francisco and, and Fairfax, Virginia, have some very um, successful hoarding task forces. They aren't specifically animal hoarding task forces, but they do um, help animal hoarding situations as they arise. Um, they, again, they coordinate agencies, they work together, they intervene and try to prevent that hoarder from going back to his or her previous ways. But as you mentioned, it is a very resource-intensive and time-intensive endeavor. It can, it should actually last for years that the agencies would monitor the hoarder and make sure that the hoarder is not slipping back into previous compulsions. 
Um, there is one state so far, Illinois, of which I know, who that has enacted a a law that is actually it has criminalized animal hoarding specifically. Um, although criminal interventions are not always the best interventions in a hoarding case, perhaps in a in an aggressive exploiter hoarding case, a criminal intervention might be warranted. But for a an overwhelmed caregiver who is amenable and wants help, then criminal prosecution is probably not the best option. So again, it's important for all of these agencies to work together to evaluate the hoarder as an individual and to tailor treatment accordingly. There, there are local ordinances, and it's, it's often it's easier to pass a local ordinance than it is to pass a state law or certainly a federal law. Yeah. Um, I advocate in my article that there should be a generalized, uniform definition of animal hoarding because a lot of these ordinances define animal hoarding differently, and that results in different interventions, different treatments. Um, if the if the United States for example, were to adopt one definition of animal hoarding, that would then increase the possibility of uniformity in treating the disorder. Um, I advocate for animal hoarding to be included as a definition in the DSM-5. You probably remember the the name of this better than I, but I think it's the Diagnostic and Statistics Manual for Mental Disorders. Um, it's, pro it's produced by the American Psychiatric Association, and it does list object hoarding as a separate disorder, which is recent for this new edition of the manual. But if it also were to list animal hoarding separately, then that would allow greater uniformity in treatment. It, it wouldn't necessarily solve the problem in and of itself, but it's a step in that direction. Um, I also mentioned that it might be nice to include animal hoarding within the Animal Welfare Act, which is the only federal law that is enacted to protect animals. However, um, I think that's a little uh, anticipatory. I don't know that, that that's really going to happen anytime soon. Um, the Animal Welfare Act has been around for a while, been amended many times, and, and I doubt that that's going to be very high on the list of priorities for the Animal Welfare Act. But I think including a definition in the DSM-5 is, is one start. And also looking into different types of intervention for hoarders is vital. Um, I mentioned um, collaborative justice rather than just criminal intervention or just civil intervention. Sometimes involving law enforcement isn't necessary at all or even productive at all. Um, but thankfully, prosecutors in the criminal law system have discretion as to what they prosecute or don't prosecute. So with more local and state laws to help guide them, um, hopefully then that will again lead to more uniform um, assistance for hoarders. But because it is such a huge problem and because the recidivism rate is so very high, it is important for agencies, um, states, cities to communicate with one another, to share information and to try to work toward a more uniform method of treatment because this kind of hodgepodge is not helping. We've been speaking with Courtney Lee. Her article is Never Enough Animal Hoarding Law. I was able to review this free online, so it's easy to uh, find if you want to really get more detail about this. Courtney, thank you very much for sharing your research with us. Thank you so much for having me. It was my pleasure. And thanks for listening. This is Dr. Peter Spiegel encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. 